Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, July the 10th, 2016. Hope everybody's doing well. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out on Twitter at MikeSilvaMedia, MikeSilvaMedia.com. And you can get this show on replay at MetsmerizedOnline.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, and pretty much wherever your favorite podcasting software is. And take a deep breath, get a drink of water. Go out, get some fresh air. It is now the All-Star break. The official ceremonial first half is now over. The Mets with a disappointing weekend series against the Nats. After the homestand that started out so promising ends uh, with a successful homestand at 7-4. I think it could have been a lot better. And uh, the Mets go into the All-Star break. Six games behind the Nats in the division. They are tied with Florida. Florida, geez. Should call Miami. I still haven't gone over that one. Uh, tied with the Miami Marlins for the second wild card spot behind uh, the Dodgers, and a first half that certainly didn't go as many of uh, Mets fans envisioned. Not all bad. A lot of uh, opportunity, of course, still forward. A lot of injuries, and um, we're going to have a, a pretty loaded podcast here for you. Rich Catino of ninety-eight point seven ESPN, FiOS, uh, SNY. You can check him out on Mets Blog. He'll be joining us in just a few to. Catch up with us about the first half, get his take, what went right, what went wrong, disappointments, surprises, and uh, what to expect from the Mets as we head into the second half after this four-day week. Later on, we'll do a book review. House of Nails, Lenny Dykstra's new book has been in the news, SNY, did a sit-down with Lenny. And Chris from MetsmerizedOnline.com did a review of the book, had a chance to catch up with Lenny at the SiriusXM studios last week, and uh, he's going to join me to do a review of the book and, and... pretty much share his experience spending some time with Lenny and giving you Lenny Dyche's point of view. So that'll be later on in the broadcast. I'll, I'll set things up here, and I'm not going to go on very long because I want to get to Rich, and Rich has a lot to say, and I know covering the team, you guys want to hear his thoughts after uh, what really has been a disappointing first half. And you can look at the glass half empty and say, like I am right now, and say this could have been a lot more, and I think it could have been a lot more this first half. But uh, to be fair, with all the injuries and some of the chaos that has been going on around this team, to be still in the playoffs, to be in a wild card spot, I guess you'll take it. It's not where you want to be. Losing 9 of 13 to the Nats is certainly not where you want to be uh, at this point. I think the Mets could have did a lot better. Um, you know, the Nats just sent a message to the Mets right now. Is that this is a different season, and they are very intent on winning this division. And I'm really not sure from day one if the Mets were as intent on defending this division title. Now, I know that there's issues uh, certainly here uh, with the pitching staff and the injuries now to Harvey. He's out for the year. Uh, you know, you don't know how long Matt's can go. Syndergaard, DeGrom was off. He had the baby. He had the latch strain. So they've been off. The Mets have just been off uh, all season from start to finish. You know, not having Cespedes the last three days, taking him out of the lineup, you just see how difficult it is to win without Cespedes in the lineup. That's kind of a harbinger of things to come as you head into the offseason, because if Cespedes walks, and he very well could, 
then you have a much different dynamic of this offense, and it's not a component that's easily replaced, not his power, not the kind of uh, RBI-centric offense that he brings to the table. So that's just something that I think is a harbinger of things to come before you just, if any of you think, hey, you know, you don't want to give Cespedes a seven-year deal, and you certainly have to be careful about the money and the years you give him, especially with David Wright's situation and how uh, bloated that contract looks for what you may not get out of him. Cespedes not being in the lineup really derailed the Mets the last three games. Think about on Friday. If Cespedes is in the lineup, instead of Lagares being up with first and third, there's uh, an opportunity there for Cespedes to be up with first and third and one out. So it's a much, uh, much different situation. But right now, look, the Mets are in the muck. I've been saying this for weeks with everybody else. They're in the muck with the Pirates, the Cardinals, the Marlins, the Dodgers. And um, the only thing you could really hope for is over the next six weeks as they head into September, the next time they face Washington, Washington, they could get this down to about two, three games, and then maybe those final five games, which even if you go and win three out of the five, you're only going to pick up a game there. You really have to be much closer. So uh, right now, I think it's about the Mets just taking it day by day, game by game, continuing to inch towards 10 games over 500 where you want to be. And every time they got close, they were nine over, after the the big win on Thursday, they seem to fall back. That's been kind of a theme the entire first half. It's a streaky offensive team. Um, I don't think you could really improve the offense all that much. I mean, right now, I think it's Michael Conforto. That's where uh, the improvement of the offense can come, and that's uh, going to have him being promoted from Vegas whenever that may happen. There is, It's not going to be easy to improve this team. Do you want to give up? the remaining offensive prospects you have, like an Ahmed Rosario and a Dominic Smith, who you may right now even be, as we're recording this podcast, watching them in the Futures game out in San Diego. Uh, there's not a lot of top-of-the-rotation-type talent pitchers that are available unless you count Wheeler, and Wheeler is somebody that I don't even know if anybody would take a flyer on now because he's got a setback from Tommy John. Uh, and, and, and there's nothing, there's no Michael Fulmer in the minor leagues this year to, to go out there and get you a Cespedes type bat. Do you want to deplete those few prospects for B level talent? I don't think you need to do that to do a Juan Uribe, Kelly Johnson type of trade. I think that's what you're going to see. I think ultimately the Mets are going to have to improve the bullpen. I think it's going to be hard to get a starting pitcher. Let's put it this way, and I said this on Twitter Logan Verrett, the version of Logan Verrett that you're going to get right now this year is no different than what you were getting out of Matt Harvey. No different whatsoever. Matt Harvey is, was not healthy. Matt Harvey uh, never seemed to get things going. Uh, so what you get out of Logan Verrett the rest of this year is, is pretty much what you probably would have got with a compromised Matt Harvey. Now, there's not the upside. Now, does that mean that you want to go out and not explore the starting pitching market? Absolutely. Sandy Alderson should do that. But to be frank, I don't think that there's going to be a veteran that's going to make all that much difference unless it's an innings-eating type of veteran uh, like Cologne, really, that could give you league average to above league average, give you seven innings and keep you in the ball game, and maybe uh, with their pedigree, uh, you know, come up big in a big spot, in a big game. Uh, the bullpen is probably the way to go. Ironically enough, uh, Tyler Clippard's pitching well out in Arizona, and maybe he would be available. He's closing games now. For Arizona, now that Ziegler is, uh, has been traded to Boston. So uh, I think that's where they're going to go. Well, there'll be a lot more time for us to talk about that as we get closer to the deadline. The one thing I do want to bring up before, and one last thing uh, before we get to uh, Rich Catino, is Daniel Murphy. And a lot of the revisionist history going on with Daniel Murphy right now. Look, I like Daniel Murphy. Uh, he drove me nuts defensively. He was one of the big reasons they didn't win that World Series, both on offense and defense. But could you really expect him to stay as hot as he was against the Dodgers and the Cubs? They don't get to the World Series without Murphy. And he had a great second half last year. And even Sandy Alderson, I remember, late in the year when he was interviewed about Murphy's offense, said that he thought Murphy had turned a corner as a player. Now, I don't think anybody, there's not a fan out there, there's not a front office person out there, and by evidence of the lack of interest in Murphy this offseason, thought that Murphy was a 30 home run, 110, 120 RBI guy. I don't know if this is Murphy going forward. It certainly is what he's on pace for to do this year, and this could be a career year. The thing about bringing Murphy back was that you could not bring Murphy back as a second baseman. Flores and Murphy at, at up-the-middle defense at second and short were awful. If it weren't for the fact that the Mets were such a high-strikeout team, I think you would have saw a much different outcome 
of last year. You could not survive with those two up the middle. And the Mets knew that. That's why they went after Zobris, and that's why they went after Cabrera. And that's why you see what competent up the middle, actually more than competent in some ways, up the middle defense, you see what you can be done and how it could help the pitching staff. Now, the argument you could make was, should the Mets have brought Murphy back as a corner player, as a first baseman instead of Duda, and as a third baseman instead of Wright? Absolutely as a third baseman over Wright. I think Murphy is a better player than Wright at this point in his career. The problem is Wright was making $20 million a year. You couldn't sign him to play third. You're going to have to ride this David Wright thing out until he retires. And, and, and that's really the reality of it. As a first baseman, sure, you could make that argument. Then you could have saw if they were a home for Duda. But again, were you counting on Murphy being a 30 home run bat like Duda? Because in this day and age, you just don't want to throw away 30 home run bats. You don't want to do that. There was no place for Murphy at second base. His offense cannot be justified. I mean, a 30 home run bat at second base, a la Jeff Kent, yeah, you could justify that at second. But he's not that guy long term. And I still think up the middle defense at second and short is, is imperative. It's so imperative. Jeff Kent later in his career moved to the corners anyway. He was more of a corner infielder, I think, his entire career. I mean, that, that was where he should have been. But the Giants had him at second base. But, but I digress on that. So you can say here, oh, the Mets should have re-signed Murphy. Look at what Murphy could do. Right now, you could have Murphy at first base, and that would be a really good first baseman. But I will tell you two things. Number one, Murphy never um, – you could not have planned for Murphy to have this kind of year, especially from the power department um, – and I don't think over the three years of this contract, Murphy will be this kind of player. I think he'll be a really solid hitter. I think he's a 15 home run, 85 RBI guy. I think he's riding the wave from October. Maybe he's figured some things out. Thank you, Kevin Long. <laughs> you know, But um, I'm not sure you're going to have a 31-20 guy over the course of an entire three-year contract with this, uh, with this scenario. What's interesting is that uh, I think it was um, uh, there was some debate with Hernandez and Cohen in the booth this weekend about players that – got a power surge later in their careers. And I think the name Paul O'Neill came up during the, the broadcast. And that's not a bad comp for Murphy at some point. And if you remember when Murphy first came up, the Mets front office at that time under Omar Minaya thought that Murphy was kind of a Paul O'Neill-ish type of comp. So interesting how it goes. But um, I think there was a lot of revisionist history with Murphy. He killed them this, this, this week, and he's killed them all year. It's really painful to see somebody that was in a Mets uniform as long as Murphy and who had such a big part of what happened last year kill the Mets and do the exact opposite to them this year. But I don't think it's fair to question the front office. Murphy was not an adequate second baseman. They needed to move on from that. And I don't think putting him at the corners was an option because of the David Wright situation because I just don't think you could have thought that he was a 30 home run. The power that you saw in the playoffs, you just could not think that that was what you were going to get over the course of a full season. And so far, that's been, they've been wrong about that, but there's still a lot of baseball left to be played. And uh, I think in the end, the Mets uh, may regret to a certain degree Murphy um, not resigning him, but not because of the fact that he was uh, the right second baseman, maybe because they picked Duder over him. And let's put it this way, one last point on that. The Nats didn't want Murphy either. They wanted Brandon Phillips. And because Brandon Phillips didn't want the Nats is why they settled for Daniel Murphy. So sometimes the best laid plans are not the ones that you go out there uh, you know, looking for when it's all said and done. Hey, let's take a quick break. Uh, when I return, you're going to hear from Rich Catino of uh, 98.7 ESPN, at Catino9 on Twitter. You can check him out on Mets blog and uh, Verizon Fios as well. And we'll get into the first half, what went right, what went wrong, and all things about the New York Mets. And uh, we'll look at the uh, second half as well. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the podcast at MetsmerizeOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And of course, if you want to send me a personal note, MikeSilvaMedia.com. We'll be right back. That's it to short. Cabrera with a great diving play. Backhand flip for one. They can't turn two, but Cabrera saves the day, and they're going to call interference against Worth. It's a double play. They didn't call it against him, even though he violated it via the rule book in the fifth inning. But this time, Worth went a little further past the bag, and the second base umpire, Jim Joyce, calls the interference. We're back. Talking Mets podcast here, and I'm happy to have with me as we recap the first half, Rich Catino. You guys all know him from Twitter, uh, ESPN, also SNY, and uh, 
big time follow the Mets, does great reporting for the Mets. Rich, Mike Silva, how you doing on this Sunday? Good. How are you doing, my friends? I, I can't complain. Listen, how would you – Mets just coming off a loss to the Nationals, lost three out of four to the Nationals. How would you summarize the first half? How would you do it uh, – a short synopsis of what is really now the ceremonial end to the first half. Well, I think a lot has happened in the first half for the Mets that may have made their work even worse than it actually is. If I was giving the team a grade, do I give them a B right now? And the reason I give them a B is because if the season ends today, they'd be in a playoff uh, game coming up. And with everything that's gone on in the first half of the year, um, I think that's good. Now, they didn't finish the last three days the way you would want them to finish going into an all-star break. But I think the Mets really need a mental and physical break from the game of baseball for four days. And they need to tap into what breeded the success of the second half last year. And they got a lot of injuries, obviously, Harvey out for the year. You really don't know what's going to go on with the rest of this rotation. You need another bat in this lineup somewhere. Um, so those are all questions that have to be answered. But Given the Mets' track record from last year, I wouldn't count them out just yet. Five back in the loss column in the division is significant this time of year. But the thing, Mike, that's very different about the National League this year than last year is last year you pretty much knew with the Mets it was a division or bust because of what went on in the Central. But I think this year it's going to be a mad scramble for those two spots. I think there's four or five teams that will have a legitimate try at it. So it does give you another fallback if this division gets out of hand, but I don't think the Mets already can see the division just yet. I totally agree with that. Uh, with me, Rich Catino, a Mets beat reporter for 90, 98.7 ESPN. Fios, you could check him out also at Mets blog, at Catino9 on Twitter. Rich, what would you say went well? What were the, some of the highlights for you in the uh, the first half? What 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 went well for the Mets? Well, I think one of the things that went well that we weren't really sure about was Addison Reed. Addison Reed's developed into a solid eighth-inning guy, which you didn't know if the Mets had one in the mix. Some thought it was going to be Bastardo, and that turned out not to be the case, at least so far. I think that's went well. I think the pickups that Sandy made, James Loney, has gone well. I think Reyes, at least in the short term, is a positive right now. So I think that's another one that you know has worked out well. I, I do think that, you know, offensively they've struggled throughout the season. And obviously Cespedes, who to me, and I know everyone's going to point to maybe Danny Murphy or Clayton Kershaw as MVP candidates. I'm not saying Cespedes is a more worthy candidate than those two, but he's at least in the conversation, and I think it's evidenced by the last three days where this offense fell without him in the lineup. Absolutely. What was the biggest surprise for you? What surprised you? What jumped out at you that you weren't expecting coming out of Port St. Lucie? Well, I think the biggest thing that I I was, wasn't expecting, I thought Cabrera would be okay at shortstop. He's been terrific at shortstop, and I'm talking about defensively as much as offensively. He's gotten almost every ball you want a shortstop to get to. He makes accurate throws. He turns the DP well. To Neil Walker, um, Cabrera combination has been a very good one in the middle, much better than Tejada and Murphy were a year ago defensively. So that, to me, the level that he has contributed, and because of the injuries, where he's had to hit in the lineup and how he's contributed into games, I mean, he's, you know, I hate that at this pace stat. I hate that. But if you're looking at it at this pace with Cabrera, you're looking at a 25 home season from him which I was expecting maybe 10 or 11 from him. So to me, Cabrera's been a huge positive surprise, as has Addison Reed. Um, guys that I thought were good, but guys that have really given heavy contributions to the team. And I know that everybody this weekend is going to talk about Daniel Murphy, and I think the real revisionist history with Daniel Murphy, one side is if you could put Murphy at third base, it would have been perfect, but with David Wright and David Wright's contract, that wasn't going to happen. You certainly could make the argument that Murphy at first right now would be a perfect situation. But Murphy Flores up the middle, and we all love Wilmer Flores, and he was a big part of what happened last year and certainly what Murphy did in the playoffs. Rich, that was an awful up-the-middle defensive tandem, and the Mets are fortunate, I think, last year. If it wasn't for the strikeout level of their staff, you really can't go far with how bad at times those two guys were. Now, it's not criticizing them. They just are limited. They just weren't up the middle. They weren't good up-the-middle tandem. No, they weren't, and I think 
when Tejada was there, it was a little better than when Flores was at short. But it still was a very, very difficult to watch at times double fight combination. And I do think as the season wears on and as bats get a little lazier as the bats pile up and pitchers don't have the strikeout ability, say they had earlier in the year, your middle infield defense becomes even more important in the second half of the year. Um, and, and the other part of it in evaluating the true Murphy thing here is that if you sign Murphy, you won't be able to re-sign Cespedes. So that's something I think that has to be factored into the equation. If, if they had given him the qualifying offer he accepted, they might have still gone out and gotten Cespedes. But if they had to give him a three-year commitment, they were not going to give a commitment even with a, an opt-out for Cespedes to him. So you, you kind of have to factor all that in. The other thing with Murphy is, and he's playing great now, and he's always been a good hitter. And, kind of, and honestly, one of my favorite guys to deal with in my career of covering the Mets, I love talking to Murphy. But I think that one of the things that you have to remember is that you have to factor this down the road. The Mets got a, a compensatory draft pick for Murphy. They're probably going to get another one when Neil Walker walks. And then you've got to establish, well, did they set a place where Dilson Herrera could play? Is that a position now that Jose Reyes moves over to next year at really inexpensive money to play second base? And even if David Wright's not around, you go, you go out and get a third baseman or a first baseman or a corner guy with that money that you would have saved. So there's a lot you have to factor in. I don't ever factor anything in midway through the season. Murphy's doing great. He's improved his game. There's no question about it. But I think that, you know, the final tally on this is yet to be determined. I have with me Rich Coutinho. You can check him out on 9870 ESPN, uh, SNY, Fios. Uh, great follow, at Coutinho9 on Twitter if you're a Mets fan. Uh, great perspective. Uh, one of my favorites. Uh, R- Rich, um, from a, uh, the other flip side on this, biggest disappointment. What disappointed you most this first half? A couple of things disappointed me. Obviously, I thought Diazza would be better than he was. I I watched Yaz. He's not an all-star, but he's a 260-270 hitter, and he hasn't played a lot, and that may be part of it. But that to me was a was a big one. I think that you know the other the other disappointing thing to me was when Darno went down. That Plowicki did not take that and run with it. I thought he would. He's used a legitimate prospect, so I thought he definitely would would take it and run with it. And obviously Matt Harvey, who you know how much this injury had to do with what how he performed is, you know, hard to say. But, you know, the Harvey thing to me was the most disappointing thing. And, and you know, getting back to one of the things that, you, that surprised us, I guess you'd have to put Bartolo Colon into that mix as well because Colon is kind of giving you the ERA number that you thought Harvey would give you. And maybe Harvey got closer to what you thought Colon would be coming into the season. But, I think that, you know, obviously Harvey, you know, very disappointing. Um, I also think that the other thing that to me that was disappointing was that the overall health of the team, once again, was not good. And, you know, it's not like it was – last year wasn't as bad as this, but it was almost as bad as this when you consider Wright went down. Murphy went down for a stretch. Duda went down for a stretch. Darno went down for a stretch. So – they had injuries last year, too, but the level of injuries they have this year is much bigger. So those are the things that I think are most disappointing looking at the first half of the season. When you bring up the health, I mean, is there something about the process? You know, you're around the team. Is it the training staff? Um, I know that there's been some talk as this Barwis situation contributed maybe to some of the injuries. Is this just bad luck? Do you have any insight into that? Because you're right, they have had a lot of injuries. The Harvey thing's a kind of a freak thing, but backs and hamstrings and quads that sometimes I don't know if it's preventable but you have to wonder where there's smoke there's fire maybe right well we're around the team but we don't see a lot of those workouts a lot of those workouts are are done in private and to be honest I don't know enough medically about how things can affect if I knew more medically about it my checking hat would look a lot better than it is now because I'd be a doctor (laughs) but I think that you know one of the things that you know you you try to look at is you try to look at the sequences that, that have occurred and why they have occurred. And I think that some of it's bad luck. There's no doubt about it. But some of it, you have to at least look at how this team is developing and training the team physically and trying to look at things that are similar in players that have gone down. I mean, you got your both corner, both your corner uh, infielders 
have back issues. Now, it's not the same exact issue, but you wonder if that's so much batting practice. Maybe maybe guys hitting off the tee when they shouldn't be hitting in the cage. Maybe just too much batting practice. Um, maybe not enough batting practice. You have to look at it and see. I don't know enough about the inner workings of it that are behind closed doors, but I think as an organization, it's something you definitely have to look at. Would you expect Lucas Duda to contribute much uh, this year with this back situation? Doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, Loney's done a nice job, but um, you know certainly you could use the 30 home run power of Duda out there. You certainly could, and, and he hasn't even done any baseball activities yet and probably won't until after the All-Star break is then. i, I got to think that at best Duda would be a September call-up that's going to play some and at the very least be a, a home run bat coming off your bench that you could use. But Loney's played very well, and if Duda came here today, I don't know if Loney would be sit down. Um, I don't know if he'd be sat down. So that's something that I think Jerry Collins has to decide, and it's the overall health of Duda. You know, you're a first baseman. People say, well, first base is a position where you don't have to do a lot of physical activity, but you have to do a lot of bending, a lot of stretching, a lot of running for bunts, a lot of cutoffs. It's not a sedentary position first base that people might think it is. So I think that that's, that's a ways away, him coming back. I would think at best you could hope for him to come back late August, early September at best. And by that time, you know, you're just going to have expanded rosters, and that's going to be where he sits on the bench, at least in the beginning of him coming back. Now, when you look at the second half, and we'll be getting into the next couple of weeks, the trade deadline, it's not going to be as clear-cut maybe as in the past. I mean, proving the offense can happen, but it's not easily a situation where, hey, there's an outfield or an impact bat that could just slide in. I mean, they've got guys pretty much solidified all around. Uh, it's not an, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an easy fix. You also have to look at it. What's Cespedes' future here in the sense where we know he's got the opt-out? If you go all in, you've already given up a guy like Fulmer for him. If you go all in and trade maybe a Dominic Smith or a Med Rosario or a Dilson Herrera to bring in guys that I'm not saying are bad, but maybe B-level type players that will help this year, but certainly don't have the ceiling of some of those prospects we talked about, you're really going all in um, with the assumption maybe that Cespedes is not going to be here past this year. And you saw this weekend... No Cespedes in this lineup, even with how good the pitching could be. This is a different team. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what, Rich, I don't know if you could just go out and say, well, we'll go out and get another 30, 40 home run bat. They don't grow on trees. So it's interesting how the Mets are going to play this at the deadline. It's very interesting to see how they'll play at the deadline. And I think that I, just like I said last year, it wasn't a slam dunk Cespedes isn't coming back. I'm going to say it again. It's not a slam dunk that he's not coming back next year. So – I don't necessarily think that if you bring someone in, it's an all-in thing. Now, I will say this, that a guy like Jay Bruce said, he's available, but he's going to cost a top-level prospect. And I think these teams that are planning a huge rebuild, like the Reds, like the Braves, even to a certain extent the Phillies, although I think they might be looking for more pitching than anything else, you've got to be careful who you give up for a bat. I do think one of the things the Mets would consider in a – I really think they were targeting on a guy that ended up being traded to the Red Sox, Ziegler. I think the Mets will think with the pitching injury to Harvey and with the with the knowledge that there may be games where Syndergaard and Mats may have to go short innings because of their the chips in the elbow, that maybe they get another guy for that bullpen and make it a trio out there. Ziegler would have been perfect because you could have even pushed Reed to the seventh, gone Reed, Ziegler, and Familia, and now all of a sudden you got a six-inning game against these Mets starting pitchers in big spots. So I think that that's a possibility. The Mets, I think of all the things that are out there in the, at, at the deadline, I, I think that relief pitchers are going to be much more plentiful than they were in past years, whereas I think hitters won't be as plentiful. So you have to decide. You're going to overpay to get a hitter, or you're going to be in that bullpen mix and maybe not have to pay as much and really build the back end of your bullpen with the hopes that Cespedes can stay healthy, with the hope that you know, Reyes could provide you know, what he's been doing so far, maybe a little more, and with the hope that you know, your offense can get better with, a, with Darno being healthy, hopefully. And you can see the catching position is getting more offense now. So I think that during the break you have, to, you have those conversations with GMs, but my feeling when I look at what could be available is – is more the bullpen guys. And if you're looking into the offseason, yes, Cespedes is going to get a lot of money, but 
What's to say then if the Mets lose Cespedes that they don't bring Jose Batista in here on a two or three year deal, being as though he's up in the age and replace that bat, Cespedes bat with Batista? That's one theory that you could take, but my feeling is that there aren't a lot of bats in the off season, and the Mets, I think, are going to make every effort to keep Cespedes if they can and give him a long-term deal because he's shown now that he's not a flash-in-the-pan guy. And I think there's a popularity and a branding that Cespedes has with the Mets right now as well, and I think that falls into it too. There's a lot of time to make that decision, but I I think it's 50-50 that Cespedes will be here next year. I agree with that. I have with me Rich Coutinho, uh, 98.7 ESPN, SNY, Fios. I agree with you on the whole uh, pitching scenario there, uh, Rich. And, and here's the thing. I, I'm wondering where they'll go with the fifth starter. Everybody's gone crazy about Matt Harvey going down, but the Matt Harvey of 2016, who is injured, is no better, is probably worse than Logan Verrett. So there's really a wash. It's bad for the upside. It's bad for the long term. But Logan Verrett is pretty much your fifth starter right now, and that's what a fifth starter gives you about league average. So I agree with you going after another bullpen arm. You know, Tyler Clippard's out there. I know he's now the closer in Arizona, and I think he was injured at the end of last year because he was pretty bad in the playoffs. Um, But do you feel that there's an opportunity maybe? You mentioned the relief pitchers. Uh, You know, give me a couple of names of relief pitchers that, you know, I throw Clippard out there. I've heard Houston Street. Also, do you think the Mets might go for a fifth starter? because they want to put Verrett in the bullpen and make him more the long guy. That, that could be, too. It'll be a fifth starter that there's a veteran from in the last year of his contract that, you know, give you some innings. I mean, I know the Padres are going to shop through Pomerantz around, but Pomerantz costs a tremendous amount of money to pick up, you know. But I urge you on the fifth starter. My problem with looking at it in the second half is, as good as Cologne's been in the first half, you may see a little downtick in the second half, given his age. You, you have to almost think that could happen. And with Zach Wheeler really not in the, the, the at least the, the the foreseeable horizon, by that I mean the earliest you could really expect him is probably September. Um, I think that you got to decide now, do you want the bet? Let's assume Syndergaard and Max are healthy and DeGrom's done with DeGrom's done in the first half. Now you're going to go with a Cologne who could be up and down as your fourth starter and a Verrett who could be up and down as your fifth starter. That's 40% of your games. You have to decide what, how you're going to address that. Are you going to go out and get another pitcher who can give you innings like a James Shields type? I'm not saying him specifically, but a guy like that that can give you innings, that will give you maybe a mid to high three ERA in that fourth or fifth spot, or do you go out and, and reinforce the bullpen so that, you know, you can – shorten the game. It's an, it's, there's definitely strengths on both sides of that argument. Um, but I do think it's something the Mets will look at. And the other thing about bringing a hitter, and not only are there not a lot of hitters out there, but it's going to cost more for a hitter. But what hitter out there is really someone that's going to make a big impact? I know Jay Bruce would make a big impact. I don't know who else the Reds, Brandon Phillips, could make a big impact as well. But I really think when I look at the Mets, I say to myself, you know, you know, Mike, you've talked to me a number of times. I have the four RBI bat theory in a lineup. To me, you need to have a lineup that has four guys that have gives you 85-plus RBIs. And I think if you do that, you can win. And right now, the Mets have it in Cespedes. But I look around and I say, where else is it? Is Neil Walker a guy that could do that? Maybe. Yeah. I don't think Cabrera's going to do that because he's in the high 20s in RBIs and he's that's not what you – you know, brought him in for Granderson, possibility, you know, but clearly they need another bat that can give him big RBI potential. The question is, where do you put him on the field? Okay? And that's the thing that Sandy's got to figure out, where you want to put him on the field, because Reyes is sitting at third base now, and Reyes is going to help this team. I, I said it on the, on the pickup, and, I, and it's not just because of what I saw these last two or three days, but if you pick up a bat, and let's say it's a third baseman, then you've got to sit Reyes or move him somewhere else. You want to keep his speed in the leadoff spot. So now you're almost X'd out third base as a possibility. Second base and shortstop, you have everyday players. Maybe there's a first baseman out there that can be had. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, teams will think about that. But really in the outfield, when you look at the outfield, you have Cespedes and Granderson. Maybe you can put another outfielder in there. But then what is your thought on Michael Conforto? Is he someone that you're right. hoping 
will come back later in the season and contribute. So, you know, they're tough decisions, and there's a reason in life there's only 30-some-odd general managers on, on earth that are baseball general managers because it's a hard job. And, and Sandy has proven not only here but in other places he's been, he generally makes the right decision. I don't think he's going to be hate. I don't think he's going to be, you know, jumping to something at the All-Star break. There are no K-Rod uh, midnight deals coming up out of the All-Star break this year. But I do think that he's going to address the needs of this team because the whole organization feels the time is now for this team to win. I do agree with that. And let's remember one thing. Just because you don't win a division, if you get a wild card, it's tougher. It's absolutely tougher. You're in a one-game playoff. Hopefully you have it at home, but if you have it on the road, it's even worse. And your whole season's in one game. Okay, but I'll tell you one thing. Teams that have won that game have generally done pretty well when they move further. The Cubs, you know, the Cubs played that game on the road last year, and they used all that momentum and beat a Cardinals team that had well over 100 wins. So you just want to get it to the party. I'm not saying the division's gone, but I'm saying when Sandy makes his moves, he has to think about making the Mets a playoff participant in his mind and what he needs to do to stay ahead of the Pirates, stay ahead of the Cardinals, stay ahead of the Marlins, and maybe even get ahead of the Dodgers for that first wild card spot or at the worst, the second wild card spot. And I think when you talk about what trade he's going to make, that's why I don't think he's going to trade Rosario. That's why I don't think he's going to trade any Dominic Smiths. I don't think those guys are going to go. I think if that's the case, then he's going to look at another way to improve his team, maybe in the back end of the bullpen, just shorten the game that way. But you can't keep sending these prospects out because part of what the plan the Mets had, they knew they had pitchers that were pretty close to being ready when Sandy took over, but they didn't have a lot of hitters. Now they're starting to develop some hitters down there. And I think that you don't want to start trading those hitters now because then the premise you had with the pitchers, you waited and, and they performed well. So I think that he's going to be careful about it, but uh, one of the things about Sandy that's great is when he sees what he wants, he generally does it pretty quickly. And I think that's what will happen by this uh, trading deadline. But the next month, the next three weeks are going to be very interesting indeed. I think Michael Conforto is where your answer is. You, you brought it up. I mean, he's, he's hitting better in Vegas. There's the hitter you bring in that now you return the outfield to where it was last year. You have Conforto in left, Cespedes in center, Granderson in right. You, you have Lagaris in for defense. And Conforto, if you get any kind of version of what you saw in April, that's a big upside. Here's the other thing. You still can get a lot of offense, a better offensive production out of Granderson. You probably could get more out of Travis Darno, And you're probably going to need that because if you think last year in August and September, Rich, Nice and Cologne were your back end of the rotation starters. They were okay. I mean, Cologne was a lot better in the bullpen than he was at times in the rotation. He was very hittable, like you said, as the year goes on. They needed to outslug some teams late in the year. People forget that. They remember the great pitching performances in the postseason. But to get to the postseason, three out of every five days, you had two pitchers that very easily could give up three, four runs. And that's what you're probably going to need to do in August and September of this year again. And think about this for a minute. Think of what Curtis Granderson has given the team since Jose Reyes has been in the legal spot. Now, part of it is he was sitting in front of Cespedes as well. But the first 16 plate appearances that Curtis Granderson had after Jose Reyes was in the legal spot, he was on base seven times. And I think pitchers are, especially if Reyes is getting on base, even 33, 34% of the time, Reyes getting on base, Cespedes is on deck, Granderson's up. I'm telling you right now, Granderson's getting nothing but fastballs. And we we see that he, he hit the ball well, and he's even become more of a patient hitter waiting for a fastball, throwing some walks. So I think if you look at that and then you look at the fact that those will be your top three, and then I, I don't think of Neil Walker as a cleanup hitter, but I guess you, there's nothing else you could do right now but put him there. But then maybe Conforto sits at five, and then your shortstop is at six, and Darno's at seven. And you, you then have a team, I didn't even think of Loney, you've got to put Loney in there somewhere. All of a sudden, if Conforto is hitting what he's capable of doing, your, your lineup has automatically gotten deeper. And remember also that Conforto, during the season, we never saw him in the lineup really much of the season with Darno in it. Darno got hurt pretty early in the season. So that was another bat that lengthened it. The problem I had with the Mets, you know, when Darno was out is, you know, 
seven eight nine was automatic out, so I don't want to say automatic because the pitchers generally hit better than the seven eight guys. But I think you know what I mean. And now with Darno down there, it gives you a little more length. I think Conforto could be a guy that they can go to because looking at Nemo, I think Nemo's future in baseball is as a fourth outfielder. I don't think he's a starting outfielder. I think he's a guy he can spark. He can play all three positions. He's a decent hitter, but I don't look at him as an everyday outfielder. And I could be wrong about that. So, to me, that's the move that I would make coming out of the break. I would say, let's take these next two weeks. Let's put Nemo back down in Vegas. Giazza, I guess you keep because of the money involved. But let's put Conforto in the lineup. Let's see what he can do. And if he starts stumbling again in the next two weeks, then maybe we think about making a deal. But let's try this internal option first. Rich, four days off, all-star break. Um, I think for some fans, like you said, uh, the Mets need some time off. The fans, I think, sometimes need time off. I think the, the reporters could certainly use time off. What do you got coming up in the near term? Are you covering the all-star game? And uh, give the fans an idea of what to expect from you over the next couple of weeks. Not going to the all-star game. In fact, you know, my book is coming out next year, so I'll probably be doing a lot of legwork with that in the four days, but at least I'll be home. Um, the book's going to be interesting. It's going to be coming out probably next May, 30 years of sports reporting in New York. And I think there's going to be a lot of reporters that aren't going to like me much after this book comes out, but that's always how books go, and that can always be fleeting. But you're going to get the inside story about how a lot of things were covered in this town, the Rangers Stanley Cup, the night of, you know, the Knicks and the OJ chase, the 86 Mets, the mid-90 Yankees, you know, how this town, you know, covers its coaches and managers so differently, the myths about Rex Ryan, the myths about Bobby Valentine, the myths about Joe Torrey. I think you can hear a lot of it, and it's going to be a fun book, and I will do a lot of that, like work on that, you know, this week because it's been real busy with games and stories. So, But at least I can do it in the comfort of my own home, and I'm actually a pretty good cook, so I'll probably one night get to have some people over and, you know, have some fun, but... I find that I do my best writing night between midnight and 5 a.m., which doesn't isn't really conducive to living your life normal, but it is the way sometimes you have to write a book. It's, uh, you know, like uh, Steve Summers, uh, schmoozing sports under the covers. You're, you're writing sports <laughs> under the covers over there. So, uh, you got it. You, you always uh, are very accessible. I always enjoy following you. Thanks so much for uh, a few minutes here, more than a few minutes. Uh, enjoy the All-Star break. Looking forward to your book, and uh, let's catch up again, all righty? You got it, buddy. Stay well. And that's Rich Catino. Uh, Rich has some interesting things to say about the Mets. Let's take a quick break. When we return, we're going to do a book review, the Lenny Dykstra book, House of Nails. Chris from MetsmarizedOnline.com had a chance to catch up with Lenny, spend some time with him at the SiriusXM studios, uh, want to get his experience there, his perspective on the experience, and get some thoughts about the book in case uh, Mets fans are interested in uh, giving it a read. I mean, SNY has been doing all the promotion for it as well, so why not? It's news. It's part of the uh, variety show of Mets baseball that we put out here every week. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Of course, you can listen to the show every week at MetsPrizedOnline.com. Check it out on iTunes. Of course, you can check me out on Twitter at MikeSilvaMedia, MikeSilvaMedia.com if you want to send me a personal note. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Mike Silva talking Mets podcast, and as I try to do from time to time, let's get the MetsmerizedOnline.com community involved, and uh, he's been on the program before, wrote an interesting piece earlier in the week, uh, actually came out on Memorial Day, 
Chris the teacher, Chris from MetSmartOnline.com. Chris, welcome back. How you doing, man? Good, man, good. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. So you had an interesting experience. I mean, it, not often do you get a chance to hang out with a former member of the Mets and uh, someone who's in the news in Lenny Dykstra. Why don't you walk me through it? How did it, how did it come about where you were able to uh, spend a little time with Lenny? And I think you got an idea, unlike some other people who just listened to Lenny on the interview or read a, an article, really of who he is, what he's trying to do, and what's going on with Lenny Dykstra's recent uh, media uh, uh, run. Yeah, well, so I uh, reached out to the publisher to review the book. Uh, they were nice enough to send me an advanced copy a couple of days before the book came out, right around the time that the snippets were being released, uh, the teasers, and we're supposed to meet them up uh, on the North Shore in Long Island for a quick Q&A, um, but on the way up, I actually got into uh, kind of a car accident, pretty big car accident, I was in the hospital for a couple of days. Uh, reached out to Lenny's people to apologize to let them know what happened, uh, that I missed an appointment that we had, and they were nice enough to invite me down to be their personal guest the next day at the Gramercy Theater, where he did sort of a Q&A panel uh, with fans and uh, with comedian Rich Voss, um, and we kind of hit it off uh, there at the Gramercy. Um, his people asked me to kind of come back hang out with them the next day at uh, Sirius XM Studios for a couple of different interviews. Um, so we got to have some nice face time with him and, and, and his entourage. So what was your expectation going in to meeting Lenny? I mean, I've watched Lenny growing up. I'm sure you watched him a little bit. Um, the stories that have been coming out over the last what, probably 10 years, I had a chance to interview someone who used to work for him at his um, at his old business that went under which really essentially was magazines for, for athletes and, and what have you. And, and there's a lot of stories about Lenny and, and who he is. What was your perception going in and what did you take uh, coming out of it? Um, well, you don't want to be too um, hardcore fanboyish when you see the guy. I mean, I'd love to talk baseball with him. Uh, I'd love to hear him hold the court about his stories. Um, but he's definitely an attention-getting figure. Anywhere that he is, he is always the center of attention. Um, he kind of tries to be the best in everything he does. I saw him in a room full of comedians, and he's the one trying to be the funniest or the most outrageous guy. So that might lead him to tell stories. It might lead him to tell tall tales. It might lead him to stress the truth about certain things. Um, but I also noticed a guy that gets a lot of phone calls, so speaks to his kids multiple times a day, his uh, sons. Uh, I noticed a guy who has some close friends, and treats people around him, from what I saw, pretty well. People that are that are close to him and inviting me here, inviting me there. He just seems like a guy who's anxious to sort of please. And that probably plays into maybe some of his issues. Uh, it's interesting, Chris, because there was a, a you know it was a great piece outlining Lenny's perspective. I think what you did, and and you really just had the book. You you outlined Lenny's point of view, which I know annoys some people, um, but. You know, when it comes down to it, uh, you saw a different side, or not that you were sympathizing with Lenny's side, but you weren't necessarily taking the narrative-driven position. Uh, Lenny's a bad guy. Lenny's just trying to out, you know, go out there and make a buck. There were reasons. Maybe you could talk about them being excuses, reasons why he decided to take performance-enhancing drugs. There was reasons why he elected to um, take the company, or the company went bankrupt, I should say, after the banking collapse in 2008. And the amazing thing for me is that taking away from all these things that uh, you learned about Lenny, he's not a stupid guy. He doesn't come across well in interviews. He doesn't obviously always say the right thing. But uh, even his stock picking scenario, although it comes across very risky, uh, there was a method to the madness, maybe a gambler's mentality, but there was a method to all the madness. Yeah, the deep in the options trading. Um, I teach economics at a, at a high school in Long Island. I actually had to look it up myself, and it's risky. Um, deep in the money options trading, but it sounds, but it is it is risky, so it could be successful if you have an idea of, of what you're doing. Um, with Lenny, his reasoning that's in the book and his sort of justifications and rationalizations of his decisions, they're, they're his. So we don't have to believe them. We don't have to uh, trust them, um, but they're his. So 
if you like Lenny Dykstra and if you want to see what he is putting forth, not even that it's truthful or not, but what he is putting forth as the reasons why he made certain choices, take the PEDs, um, his reasoning, you can see that in the book. Um, you could also see some of the crazy stories that he has. Now, are they, did they happen verbatim as he puts them in the book? I can't say that they don't because I wasn't there. Uh, but they're pretty good stories and they're entertaining. So I saw this book as an opportunity to see what – I knew what Lenny was doing on the field because I was watching. I loved him. He was my favorite player as a kid. Uh, this gave me a chance to see what he was doing off the field. And he was very critical of Davey Johnson in the late 80s Mets. And I'll tell you what, I, I agree with him on a, on a couple of things, maybe disagree. The first thing I agree with him is that absolutely Davey ma- mismanaged uh, the 1988 NLCS. For those who weren't around, I mean, not bringing in Randy Myers in the ninth inning, he's 110% correct. And I'll tell you what, I had talked to the late Gary Carter when he was the manager of the Long Island Ducks uh, about five years ago. And I remember bringing that up, and he gave me a no comment and a smile when I when I brought that up. So I think there were others on that club that agreed agreed with that assessment. I mean, he was tough on Greg Jeffries, uh, different media time. Greg was, was not accepted into that clubhouse, but he was very critical of the late 80s Mets. And it seems like Lenny blamed the leadership on that team for perhaps its, un- perhaps its demise than, than anything else. Oh, 100%. Um, and that's been chronicled before. It's not like he's the first person to say this, whether uh, it was in The Bad Guys 1 by Jeff Perlman, where he talked about the sort of the front office kind of blowing that team up um, because of all the off-the-field stuff that happened. They didn't want that image, so they tried to bring in kind of squeakier, clean guys uh, and, and rely on that, and they just didn't pan out. There was no real tough presence anymore like you would have saw across the dugout in, in like an Oral Hershiser, bulldog type of type of mentality. Uh, in terms of Game 7, I mean, uh, in 88, Twitter, if it was around, if uh, there was more of a social media presence, any, any at all, we would have, they would have absolutely hung Davey Johnson out to dry after that series. 100% hung him out to dry. So, look, this is a guy that was in the dugout. He can talk about the moves that his manager made and be critical of it if he wants to be because it affected him. It affects his legacy and his team's legacy. And he doesn't even just make it about himself or the team. He says how... Not only Davey failed the club, but he failed the city, uh, and he failed the fans. And I thought it was interesting when I read his rationale for taking steroids, PEDs, and it's been something I've been saying a while. And you're a former athlete. Now, there's no doubt steroids make you stronger. They give you more focus. And, and maybe that's even from a mental perspective, just with you feeling that you have an advantage because of what you took. But the thing that he talked about was I was, you know, Lenny's probably about my height, five foot eight probably at the time, uh, 165, 107 pounds back in the mid-80s, late-80s, and he couldn't stay on the field. And it's interesting, I went back to the game logs of the 88 Mets, just took the 88 Mets, and Lenny, I think, hit a little over 200 in August and September of that year, which validates what he said. He would break down or he'd wear down as the season wore on. Uh, you know, amphetamines fall into that. I don't know what, what he means by PEDs, what he took. I mean, I think he took something a little bit stronger than amphetamines, but it's interesting because a lot of the outrage over the drugs is that all of a sudden the average player becomes great. These are all really good players. They just can't stay on a field, and that's how they were trying to stay on the field. I'm not excusing it, but to me, that's the steroid story in baseball. It's not all of a sudden I, I bulked up 40 pounds and I could hit 40 on run. There are guys that could do that, but I think it was more about staying on a field more than anything. Oh, 100%. A lot of it's about recovery and injury prevention. Um, I if I had to look further into it, thinking from his mentality, you talk about 88 and how he broke down at the end of the season. I truly don't believe he was using performance-enhancing steroids until he became a Philly. I think that what he says in the book about that is true. I think he was trying a cocktail of barbiturates and amphetamines in the 80s, and he was noticing that it wasn't working and that he would break down in August and September, and he'd sort of be running on fumes. And look, by the way, he played the game a lot different than the way anybody plays it today. Uh, There's a reason, obviously, why he was called nails. When you're running around like that um, as fast and as hard as you can with every single action, you know, we see guys today who don't even run out third strikes that are in the dirt, um, it's going to break you down. 
Um, so I think that the amphetamines weren't working for him. And I think he learns about this stuff and he takes uh, uh, a steroid called DECA um, when he's in Philly. And what that's going to do is it's going to bulk him up. It's going to make him strong. It's going to build up his muscles so that they won't break down uh, in the second half. And look, the proof is there. I mean, he says it in his in his book and he says it uh, in the special on SNY. No left-handed batter has ever had more plate appearances than he did in what I believe was the 1992 um, 93 season. season. 93, 93 season, season. Yeah. yeah. Not 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 Babe Ruth, Lenny Dykstra. Most plate appearances and, by a left-handed pitcher. So a left-handed hitter. Uh, right, and and here's the thing: it almost was a double-edged sword. It's a, it's a it's a and this is again my opinion. Lenny broke down after the '93 season, and I believe he has a similar condition, if not the same condition that David Wright has. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things with all those guys that took steroids, especially somebody like Lenny, who was not quite six foot tall, you're putting a lot of muscle mass on your body that your body's not meant to have. If you're five foot eight, I think there's a capacity that your body's meant to carry. He probably was above that capacity. Now he also was reckless in the in the field and off the field, car accidents off the field, and obviously crashing into outfield walls and what have you. He didn't take care of his body with with drugs and cigarettes and things like that, but. I think it played into him breaking down because he was pretty much out of the game within three years after that great 1993 season. Well, a lot of things that we might also forget, uh, he mentions it briefly in the book, and Ronnie did a very nice job of bringing it up on the SNY special, is that he was doing all this for 81 games on the carpet at Veterans Stadium um, at yep. the Vet in Philly, which is a notorious, horrible playing surface. So he's basically running around on cement. So if you want to talk about lower back problems like we talked about last time with David Wright, I mean, when you're running around on cement and it's not like they had the most supportive and best shoes for the situation in 1993, uh, it's definitely not going to be helpful to your lower spine. I have Chris with me from MetsamorizedOnline.com reviewing the Lenny Dykstra book, House of Nails. Had a chance to spend some time with Lenny, uh, including over at SiriusXM. uh, with the Opie and Anthony show. A couple of things, Chris, before we wrap up this book review. Uh, did he say anything about how he – there was a mention about how he helped with the uh, labor stoppage and get, get the baseball back on the field in 1995. It was, did he go into depth with that at all, or that's more buried in a book and something that the, uh, the, the readers would have to find out if they purchased the book? He does – he talked about it in one interview. I'm not sure which one it was that day that I was there. Uh, he did talk about how they basically brought him in, and Sandy Alderson was actually on the panel – uh, he, you know, allegedly, Lenny says that Sandy Olson was on the panel. He's flown in uh, in secret to um, baseball front office, and they're asking him about amphetamines and street drugs, such as cocaine, in the game. And what Lenny says happened, again, this is all what Lenny says happened, is that he said, no, 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 that's not your problem anymore. Steroids is your problem. This is just, Steroids are your problem. And he gave them all an education about steroids. Um, well, now, for, for the labor stoppage, he mentioned uh, in another interview that he rationalized it down mathematically how much money that each one of them were losing per day. And their window to make money was closing. He knows he did it mathematically what the average lifespan of a baseball player was. And they were losing not only that money by day, but in in perpetuity, because that money that they don't have can't work for them tomorrow. That money that they don't have, they can't invest. They can't buy things with and gain equity with right. because they don't have that money. So he was just sort of saying, hey, we got to get back to playing here, guys, because this isn't going to last for us forever. No, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Did, you know, last thing before I let you go, um, was there something that the biggest learning you took away from reading this book, something that, whether it be about Lenny, it be about the time period that you didn't know about going in that you walked away with and said, oh, you know, that's something that really was worth reading. And, uh, you know, now you have a different perspective or, you know, a different learning about the game or Lenny or what have you. I did not know, um, and this is probably surprising. I do pride myself as kind of being a big Nets fan. I didn't know how crybaby-ish uh, uh, Jeffries was. Uh, I didn't. I did read um, The Worst Team Money Can Buy. Uh, which is about yep. uh, early 90s Mets and Jeff Torborg and stuff. But I didn't know just how, I mean, we talk about the dark days in 09 and 10 and 11 with the Mets. I mean, 
the early 90s were an absolute disaster. Yeah, they were pretty irrelevant. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, at that point, the Knicks were really good. Yep. Uh, football is always football. The Yankees were coming into their own. You still had the, uh, the you know, the Rangers had won a Stanley Cup. I mean, the Mets were way behind. I mean, even the Islanders had an upset of the Penguins during that period. The Mets were way behind. And I know growing up, baseball was my first sport that I started watching. And I remember when the Knicks turned it around and how exciting that team was. I mean, once, uh, you know, once the Knicks season was, was over, then you'd watch the Mets until the Knicks would start again in some cases. And, and that's the way it was. But, yeah, I think Jeffrey's got a raw deal in the sense where he didn't make life easy on himself. And I know recently he was on Mets Blog's podcast and, uh, you know, downplayed a lot of that. Uh, but the team decided to build around him, which, again, think about it, Chris. I mean, today's day and age, Greg Jeffries was five foot six, five foot seven, good line drive hitter, a guy without a position. A guy like that probably doesn't – Lenny and Greg Jeffries don't get drafted today. Nobody's looking at five foot six, five foot seven, five foot eight players, no matter how good you are. Even if you throw 95, well, maybe you get drafted if you throw 95, but they're not looking at those guys anymore. It's interesting because – these are athletes that would probably not be considered at all with more organizations today. It's just how, how the world has changed. Well, that gets back to Lenny and Lenny's point. He says that uh, when he was being scouted and drafted in high school, he spoke to a prolific scout who told him that, hey, listen, you're small, and the small guy has to prove that he can play. The big guy just has to right. prove that he can't. Right. That's absolutely right. Hey, what do you got coming up at MetsamorizeOnline.com? I know you have the tops uh, situation let uh, let those listening. Um, I know they follow you over at the uh, at the website at, at Chris the Teacher. If they want to follow you on Twitter, what do you got coming up for uh, for the fans at MetsMarsOnline dot com? Uh, dropping a couple of top snail cards this week for the Mets All Star uh, All Star selections. We got Familias coming out soon. We got uh, Colognes, which I think a lot of people are going to snatch up. This forty three year old yep. All Star. He's uh, you know an All Star replacement. Um, so we're, we're looking at that and we're trying to look at some, hopefully, uh, at least gain a series split today against the Nationals. Yeah, I hear you on that. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate good book review. Uh, good work there. And, uh, let's do it again as the season goes on. Okay. Indeed. Thanks so much, man. Be good. And that's Chris from MetsMarsOnline.com. Let's take a quick break and wrap up right after this. Hey, Mets fans. How would you like to get all of your favorite Mets merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team. In this case, it'll be the Mets. And every month, you get Mets gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full of some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code TALKINGMETS at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all the essentials you need. We're back. Final thoughts here. Talking Mets podcast. Hey, I want to remind you, check out Twitter every Tuesday morning as uh, I put out the FanEssentials.net quiz question so that you can win a free month of FanEssentials.net. You've heard the commercial early in the broadcast. That's where you get all your favorite uh, fan-centric gear. Uh, in this case, it could be the Mets if you pick, Knicks, Giants, Jets, whatever your favorite team is. You get a free, uh, a free Fan Essentials uh, box for a month courtesy of uh, the Talking Mets podcast. So check that out every Tuesday. Of course, uh, the All-Star break, guys, take a rest, take a blow. You know what? Even if fans and media, you just got to get away from the game for a few days. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to go on long about this. I'm not an All-Star game guy. Uh, I'm not a home run derby guy. I'll probably watch some of the highlights afterwards. I can't stand the fact that the All-Star game decides home field advantage. I don't care that Terry Collins is the manager. That you know, Maybe Cologne. Maybe I'll try to check out Cologne's inning because that'll probably be fun. But uh, in general, I'm not an all-star fan guy, uh, all-star game fan uh, guy. It just it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me to get into that. I wish at this point, with the pitchers wanting time off, they name the teams, they have like a little ceremony and forget about the game and have the team with the best record over 162 games, no matter what league they're in, have them have home field advantage. That's the way every other sport does it. That's the way baseball should do it, but that's you know, neither here nor there because, you know, what the hell do I know anyway? But anyway... I want to thank Rich Catino. You can check out Rich at at uh, Catino9 on Twitter. Of course, I want to thank Chris from MetsamorizedOnline.com for his review of uh, the Lenny Dyshirt books, House of Nails. If you want to check me out, go to at MikeSilvaMedia, MikeSilvaMedia.com. And, of course, you can listen to this show live on replay 
at mesmerizedonline.com. Have a great all-star break. See all of you guys next week. Take care. No, using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy. Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.